Welcome to Parents Perspective. I looked out at the new school playground where recess was in full swing. Three and four-year-olds, including my own daughter, were charging back and forth along a wooden gangway, crawling through wooden tunnels, calling to each other from the top of wooden towers, all lovingly erected by parent volunteers in 1987. During the 1980s, wooden play structures became the rage. Almost without exception, they were constructed from pressure-treated wood. In 1988, the EPA reached a decision. Although CCA, chromated copper arsenate, i.e. arsenic, the chemical used in pressure-treating wood, was re-registered as a pesticide for wood, its use by the wood preservation industry would be allowed to continue. After further findings confirmed the chemical's carcinogenic dangers, including leaching into the soil, in 2004, a ban on CCA wood treatment would go into effect. But for millions of homes with arsenic in their decks and playgrounds with arsenic in the play equipment, no recall, no replacement, no testing. EPA did advise that children should wash any exposed skin after contacting such play equipment. This was an excerpt from a book called Raising Elijah, Protecting Our Children in an Age of Environmental Crisis. From a parent's perspective, what should parents know and what can we do to provide our children with a safer environment? I'm Sandy Burt. And I'm Linda Perlis. Our guest has been working on just this sort of problem. Dr. Sandra Steingraber, recipient of the Rachel Carson Leadership Award, has lectured before Parliament of the European Union at various medical conferences and on college campuses. A visiting scholar at New York's Ithaca College, she has written Living Downstream, an Ecologist's Personal Investigation of Cancer and the Environment, and Having Faith, an Ecologist's Journey to Motherhood. Her most recent book is Raising Elijah, Protecting Our Children in an Age of Environmental Crisis. She and her husband have two children, a 10-year-old son and a 13-year-old daughter. Welcome to Parents' Perspective, Dr. Steingraber. Thanks, Linda. Thanks for having me. What's the greatest challenge for parents who are trying to make their children's environment a safe one? I think it would be the recognition that our regulatory agencies aren't really protecting children. It's a broken system, and therefore, even though we scientists have lots of information about the dangers to kids, our regulatory system isn't responding to the new science. So into the breach leap us parents, right, who have to become our own departments of interior and EPAs to constantly monitor every goodie bag that comes home from every birthday party and uh, even the wood that our children's play structures are made of. And that's exhausting. In fact, it's not even possible. I'm a pretty good organic chemist, but I can't keep up with all the hazards that are out there. And I think what happens then is that parents fall into a kind of despair. They use up their quota of concern about, uh, you know, the discovery that there's lead in the vinyl lining of their children's lunchbox, and they don't have any left over for 
this new extreme form of energy extraction called fracking, which is coming to their neighborhoods. And so it's overwhelming, and parents can easily fall into what I call in Raising Elijah well-informed futility syndrome. (laughs) And so I begin with that point, and I try to march my readers out of that bad place and find a way forward so we don't have to put our heads in the sand and ignore the fact that our children aren't really being protected, but we don't fall into despair and cynicism either. Why are children so much more vulnerable to environmental toxins than adults? Well, children's bodies and brains, of course, are still being assembled, right? And so our children are actually more ecological than we adults are. They breathe more air, breath for breath and pound for pound of body weight. They drink more water and they eat more food. And so all these molecules of air, food and water that are streaming into them become their growing bodies. So really, when you think about it, all that we parents contributed in a material way to the bodies of our children were the uh, 23 chromosomes that we bequeath to them at the moment of their conception. The rest of them, the sparkle in their eyes, the smoothness of their skin, their hair, their bones, their blood plasma, those are all rearranged molecules of the environment. So what's in the environment becomes our children. They're knitted together from the world around them. This is just as scary for grandparents, I want you to know, (laughs) as it is for parents. Well, yeah, I guess so. But I feel as a parent that I have two fundamental responsibilities, and those are the age-old ones that all parents have had, which is to plan for my children's future and to keep them from harm. Right? Those are my two big jobs. As a biologist, I know that we're living in an age where planning for their future has been made complicated by the fact that we're in a planetary crisis and that the whole world's atmospheric system is now becoming destabilized through climate change. So I have a hard time planning for my children's future. And at the same time, toxic trespass of chemicals into my children's body prevents me from keeping them safe from harm. I'm a pretty good parent, but I'm not a HEPA filter, as I say in Raising (laughs) Elijah, right? I can't put my body in between those toxic chemicals and the bodies of my children. And so really, the environmental crisis is a crisis of family life. It's made it impossible for me as a parent to carry out my sacred responsibilities to my kids. And that, again, it became the starting point for me writing this book. So if we want to be good parents, we really have to take on the environmental crisis in the same way that we have to learn about car seat recalls and we have to make decisions about vaccinations. You know, these are all complicated, hard and vexing problems. And we have to take action even when we don't have all the available evidence at our fingertips. What about people who say, well, wait a minute, I'll just take my kids and move to some isolated farm someplace in North Dakota or something? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there is no way, right? I think that I identify hydraulic fracturing of shale gas as the biggest emergent threat to children. We can talk more about that if you'd like, but North Dakota actually is the place <laughs> that's in the middle of the gas boom. So I don't think there's any place that's entirely removed from all these things. In fact, mothers in the far north of Canada, Inuit women, testified with me a few years ago before the United Nations about the ability of some of these toxic chemicals to travel in the jet stream to cold climates where it's finally cold enough that they come back down to earth, insinuate themselves into the food chain. And so the 
breast milk of Inuit mothers who live close to the pole are some of the most highly contaminated breast milk in the world. And so these mothers came in the halls of power to stand up and say, this is a form of ecological genocide against our people and our children. It was a very powerful testimony. And so I see signs now of mothers, especially mothers, but also fathers all around the world coming together to deal with the environmental crisis as parents for the sake of wanting to protect children and and provide for them. So it's a very inspiring and powerful movement. I feel lucky to be a biologist at this moment in history and a mom and to be part of this bigger conversation. You know, when I read books to my children, sometimes we read books about Harriet Tubman, who led the Underground Railroad. And her home is actually not far from where we live in upstate New York. And so we like to imagine, like, if we had lived in the days of slavery, would we have stood up against the dominant form of unpaid labor that our whole economy was dependent on? And would we have hidden the slave in our house, risking everything? Would we have gone against popular opinion? We like to imagine that we would, that we would have been Harriet Tubman if we had lived in the 1830s. But we live now. And the ongoing destruction of our planet and the introduction of toxic chemicals into family life is the challenge that we have. That's the human rights crisis of our day. So I actually feel really privileged to be a biologist working with other parents to solve these problems. We'll take a short break now and be right back to continue our discussion on safe environments for children. The popular book, Raising a Successful Child, Discover and Nurture Your Child's Talents, by Sandra Burt and Linda Perlis, is available at all major bookstores and on the web. Welcome back to Parents' Perspective. We are talking with Dr. Sandra Steingraber about protecting our children in an age of environmental crisis. What led to your own personal crusade? Well, I have many aha moments in my life, and I hope I keep having them, right? But one of them surely is the fact that I myself was diagnosed at age 20 with an environmental cancer, a bladder cancer. And it was my own diagnosing physician who asked me what kind of chemicals I had been exposed to as a child. And of course, I had no answers for those questions. In fact, it seemed surreal to me at the time. I went back to the medical library when I got out of the hospital, and as a young biologist began to investigate links to bladder cancer, I was shocked to discover that we have absolute proof for the ability of some particular chemicals to cause this kind of cancer that I had, and yet that proof was never used to divorce our economy from its dependence on those chemicals. So the knowledge about their harm didn't somehow trigger something that I had imagined was automatic, which was that we would therefore abolish them. That's not the case in 1979 when I was diagnosed, and it's not the case today. But I, at that moment in history as a young cancer patient, remember very clearly lying in the hospital wondering what I was going to do now. I was going on to medical school, but I didn't want the hospital to be my workplace anymore. And I picked up the newspaper, and the headlines were all about a place called Love Canal. And a woman named Lois Gibbs, who is this kind of homemaker and mom, was challenging all these pools of toxic chemicals under her houses and insisting that something be done. And that was a transformative moment for me because I realized I didn't just have to feel despair about my new life as a cancer patient, but that there were people actually fighting on my behalf. And I imagine that I wanted to do something like that. And so I really kind of followed in those footsteps and environmental health became my field of study as a professional scientist. And of course, now that I'm a mom, it's something I practice in this sloppy ecology of my own household as well. (laughs) As a mom, how would you say that parents can make their children's environment safer 
without putting the whole house in a plastic bubble. Exactly. Well, I think there are two answers to that, and I devote several chapters in Raising Elijah. Essentially, all the solutions fall into kind of two categories. One are the activities that our own kids don't see, which means acting as a citizen, acting in political ways, so that we make our regulatory agencies responsive to the scientific evidence that we have, and we begin to divorce our economy from inherently toxic chemicals, chemicals that can end pregnancies. And whether you look at this as a right-to-life issue or a pro-choice issue, I think we could all agree that any chemical that has the power to extinguish a human pregnancy or sabotage fetal brain growth development has no place in our economy. And so this is a battle that we can all engage in. And of course, for me, this means briefing Congress, going to Brussels and testifying at the European Union, going to church basements on Friday nights and talking to communities that are at the tail end of toxic contamination. At the same time, there's the world that we can see, which is the world of our own homes. And to try to transform our own food chains and laundry cycles uh, and lawn care practices to be in line with the way we like the larger world to look. And I think the good news of Raising Elijah is that, according to my research, you can do this and actually make your life more convenient and save money. It sounds like too good to be true. (laughs) But the systems ecology of all this actually is on our side. So, for example, I decided to get rid of my clothes dryer and my gasoline-powered lawnmower. And now I have clotheslines, both inside and out, and I use a push mower. And I discovered it actually doesn't take any longer. It's healthier, both for me and more for my kids. And it saves money. So it's sort of a triple win, I think. So, for example, a push mower, when I have a really nice one that's kind of been redesigned, you burn about the same amount of calories as you do pushing a fully loaded stroller. And so you can push the lawn mower up and down your grass, and you can still oversee, let's say, a trampoline party, right? Because your kids can be out there with you. Whereas when I had a gasoline mower and my kids were too little to leave inside the house when they were by themselves, but it's also not safe to have them out in the yard while you're pushing around this, you know, smog-generating, rock-throwing, loud decibel machine, it was really a problem. Like, do I hire a babysitter, take care of my kids so I can mow my grass? So having a push mower, just, I got exercise, which I have to do anyway. So instead of going to the gym, I could just push this thing around, right? And if I began to think of it like an exercise machine, I said in Raising Elijah, look, if you tricked out a push mower with a cardiac monitor and a cup holder, you know, people would pay money to push this around (laughs) in a gym. And so we can go out there and get an aerobic workout and get our grass cut. And our kids, you know, can either be napping under the tree or they can be having a play date. So it actually fit into my life as a mom. And I don't have to store toxic gasoline in my house. Moreover, gasoline engines, especially two-stroke engines, don't stop polluting once the engines are off. When you put them inside your garage, they continue to off-gas carcinogenic vapors like benzene, which is linked to childhood leukemia. And if your garage is attached to your house, two-stroke engines can contaminate your indoor airspace. And so the more I looked at it, the more I realized... I have trouble finding time in my day to get enough exercise anyway. My yard and garden tools, therefore, should be hand tools so I can kind of multitask while I go. So there's, you know, a chapter on how to do that. There's a chapter about the way the clothesline can actually save time because you can sort laundry as you go. And you don't, you know, clothes dryers are kind of clothing randomizers. So anyway, I go through all of the things inside a house from food preparation to laundry to lawn care and transform it in green ways and discover 
it's actually not inconvenient. And that, I think, is all crucial, right? Because I'm work full-time. I travel 100 days of the year. If all these green solutions were absolutely inconvenient, there's no way that I could do it. I don't get enough sleep the way there is. (laughs) But there's good news here. We'll take a short break now and be right back to finish our discussion on safe environments for children. Parents' Perspective needs you, your feedback, your opinions, and not least, your donations that help with the cost of producing this award-winning program. Visit us online at www.parentsperspective.org and click on to give direct, I give, or eBay at Mission Fish. Please help us continue to help you. Thank you. Welcome back to Parents Perspective. We're talking with Dr. Sandra Steingraper about protecting our children in an age of environmental crisis. Could you name one biggest issue that we as parents should be concerned about? It's got to be fracking, right? So there's a new form of extreme fossil fuel extraction now that is sweeping across the nation. I'm very alarmed about it. It started in places in the West like eastern Wyoming and eastern New Mexico and Utah, where very few people live, and has now come all the way to the shores of the Delaware River Basin, where 15 million people depend on for drinking water. And it's a form of extreme energy extraction that involves blowing up the bedrock under our feet, using our drinking water as the club to smash those rocks, to liberate bubbles of methane, so-called natural gas, to flow up a borehole. And to do so requires filling the earth with toxic chemicals, some of which are carcinogens, some of which cause birth defects, some of which are brain poisons and linked to learning disabilities and so forth, and requires so much energy that we threaten to blanket our communities with smog and fill our rural roads with fleets of 18-wheelers hauling hazardous materials. So as far as I can see, this raises risks not only because we're contaminating potentially air, food, and water that our children depend on, that we're industrializing our rural areas where we're growing food, but also because communities where gas drilling takes place, we see increases in drug use, increases in crime, increases in traffic accidents, and so forth. And so for purely sort of old-fashioned health and safety issues for our kids, they're transforming our communities in ways that are just not safe. And so fracking has become my main focus at this point because I have never seen a bigger threat to the environmental lives of children as fracking has. I mean, there's good news here, too. And there's a whole chapter in Raising Elijah about fracking for readers who want to know more. The good news is that we could entirely run our economy um, without needing to blow up our bedrock to get natural gas out if we can lower our energy consumption. And that's a doable project. And so I'm really interested in getting us off of fossil fuels and moving us right to renewable energy. I feel like that's my job as an adult, as the parent at this moment in time, because we've run out of all the easy to get fossil fuels. Maybe at one point, natural gas was a clean burning fossil fuel alternative, but all those easy to get supplies of natural gas are being diminished. Now we're going after the really difficult to get stuff, the stuff that requires blowing up the rocks under our feet. And that's a pathway I don't think we should be going down. 
In addition to which, recently we've been hearing that those communities that are having a lot of fracking going on evidently are also experiencing some earthquake Well, symptoms. yeah, I want to be clear yeah. about that because it's it's a complicated story. But the earthquakes, which are truly real and are indeed linked to fracking activities, are specifically linked to the injection of fracking wastewater back into the ground in these so-called deep well injections. So far, we don't have good evidence to say that fracking itself is linked. Nevertheless, this is one of the many Achilles heels, I think, of this industry because we use millions of gallons of water to blow these rocks up. And about half of that water comes flying up out of the borehole with the gas. It's contaminated with radioactivity, which is naturally found at those strata, and a lot of different heavy metals and some of the fracking chemicals that we added to get the gas to flow. And so it's very toxic water, and it needs to be permanently disposed of somewhere, right? And so we shove it into deep geological strata. So we re-inject it back into the ground in places like Ohio. And because that fluid is so slippery, it can cause deep geological rocks, the friction kind of holding them in place is lessened so they can easily slip and slide, thus triggering seismic activity. So it's the reinjection of fracking wastewater that's triggering the earthquakes. And so as somebody who lives in upstate New York, right now we have a moratorium on this form of gas exploration, and we're fighting very hard to keep that. But we're paying attention especially to what's happening to families in Ohio as Pennsylvania fracking waste is triggering earthquakes there because that's where our wastewater would go. And as a mom with small children who can imagine the terror of living through an earthquake with my children. I am in solidarity with the families of Ohio, and I do not want to be able to cook my food or heat my house with a form of energy, the wastewater from which is terrorizing families in in a nearby state. And so I think it's going to require all of us across the nation to make clear that the damage from this form of energy extraction are not risks that we're willing to take. What specific and doable changes should we realistically lobby our schools and communities to make? Well, I think the answer to that depends on your own skill set and interests and depends on the community. So I never tell people what to do in raising Elijah. Each one of us should ask ourselves, you know, what instrument can I play in this great human orchestra? You know, we all all need to play the Save the World Symphony now. And what's my instrument? What can I do? And so the answers are going to be different for different people. In my little village of Trumansburg, New York, we actually all got together and decided to ban fracking within the village, which is a little bit like the Chinese these guys standing in front of the tanks in Tiananmen Square. You know, the industry claims, oh, look, you're just a town. You can't regulate the oil and gas industry. You don't have the right to do that. Only the state of New York can do that. And our response is, no, I don't think you understood. We're not regulating you. We're banning you. You know, you know <laughs> we're zoning you out. Uh, we don't want your tanker trucks going down our main street where my son Elijah walks to school every day. We don't want the fields and orchards and vineyards to be filled with what looks like, you know, NASA, right? Um, These big gas drilling things. So we don't want you. And so we'll see where this goes. But a lot of us worked very hard to bring that ban about. Other communities who are not living on shale plays may decide that what they really want are 
to have gardens that bring locally grown food into the school lunch program, which is kind of a wonderful project that a lot of parents are involved in. Or they want these wonderful things called walking buses. So we're getting children to walk to school again, but older children can kind of go around a route and pick up the younger children. And so there's safety in numbers. And so there are all kinds of really wonderful, innovative ideas out there. I hope that Raising Elijah is a good clearinghouse of information for people who are trying to decide what's my place in the score here and what instrument do I want to play it. There's an appendix that provides readers a lot of places to get started. As you've been tackling this subject of environmental safety, what's been your biggest surprise? My biggest surprise is how eager my kids are to know what I'm up to. Children are so unlike us emotionally. I mean, that's not news, right? (laughs) They respond to all kinds of things in bigger and different ways than we would. But the environmental crisis does not cause kids to get a case of the vapors and say, oh, I don't want to think about that, you know? So for a long time, I thought my job was to hide my own research from my children. I didn't want them to know. I was dealing with topics like one in every four mammals is now headed for extinction. Um, So I was sewing my son a polar bear costume for Halloween because that's what he wanted to be. So I was a mom sewing this costume on the one hand, and then I would go back into my office and look at, you know, the evidence for the polar bear extinction and so forth. And I was keeping those worlds entirely separate until my kids learned to read. And I'm not that good at filing everything that I do, you know, in file folders. And they would read at what I was doing and want to know. And it it turns out when children learn this information, they want to take action. And they come up with things like, well, mom, why don't we just put solar panels on cars? So they want to solve problems. And so I actually devote one chapter in Raising Elijah to talking about, like, how do we talk to our kids about climate change? You know, it's like the sex talk, only it has a sad ending rather than a happy ending. So I was thinking that wasn't a talk I should have with them. But in fact, they wanted to have it. And they see themselves as heroes of their own story. So if there's a problem, they want to be, you know, the one out there with the sword who's going to vanquish the bad guys and solve the problem. So I think in talking with other parents that that's their experience too. So we shouldn't be afraid to deal with these things because we don't want to expose our children to them. One mom told me that she was a retired third grade teacher and said that when she was teaching during a time when there was the nuclear missile crisis in 1962, she asked her children how many people thought that there would be a nuclear disaster in their lifetimes. And all the children raised their hand except one. And that she asked that little girl, why don't you think it's going to happen? She said, well, because my parents are peace activists and they're working to stop it. Oh right? So I realized in that moment with that story <laughs> that my job is not to hide all this information from my kids. My job is to let them see me go off to Albany and lobby and to, to go to church basements on a Friday night and speak so they know that mom's on the job. And that's what makes kids feel safe and protected because they have this idea of, you know, the ability of their parents to change the world. And so, therefore, I have to live up to that. Well, this is a conversation that could go on and on, but unfortunately, we're running out of time. So, Dr. Steingraber, in addition to your book, Raising Elijah, Protecting Our Children in an Age of Environmental Crisis, what resources would you suggest for our listeners who want to pursue some of these issues further? There's an annotated appendix at the end of all the different organizations that I have personal experience that I think are particularly effective, organizations who are already on the job. And so I think that makes people's entry point easier easier if they don't have to try to kind of figure out what the task is and how they can join in. 
In addition, Raising Elijah has its own Facebook page, and my readers have really turned that into a forum to discuss all of the issues that they're worried about in their own households and really do a lot of information exchange. I have my own website, steingraber.com, that also serves as an information clearinghouse for my readers. Well, our special thanks today to Dr. Sandra Steingraber for sharing with us her experience and expertise on how we can try to help clean up our environment and make the world better for our children. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. The best way to get in touch with Parents Perspective is to email us at parentsper at gmail.com. Our first listener will receive an autographed copy of Dr. Steingraber's book, Raising Elijah, Protecting Our Children in an Age of Environmental Crisis. Just email us at parentsper, P-A-R-E-N-T-S-P-E-R, at gmail.com and give us your name and snail mail address and mention show 499. Tell us, if you can, what station you're tuning into. Visit our website, www.parentsperspective.org, where you can even listen to a show of your choice, or check us out at facebook.com slash parentsperspective. This is Sandy Burt and Linda Perlis. We're glad you could share Parents Perspective. Today's program was made possible with generous support from Janet and Michael Kornfeld and Sheila and Howard Kulang. Our sound engineer is Kent Hitchcock. Music for this program was composed and performed by Jonathan Burt. Thank you.